continuing in this series on praying the Psalms. We have, I believe this is Psalm number nine that we uh, have gone through in this series. We have 13 of these, so we'll be going through the end of January in this series. I, I do want to encourage you again, please don't lose sight of the goals of this series. They're on the front of the worship bulletin, the worship guide of what we're hoping to do as a church as we go through this, growing together in studying God's Word, abiding together in prayer. That's why every week we are we have someone that's coming up and praying through the psalm at the end of the message. And then also just wanting to make this our own personal practice to pray the psalms as part of our uh, daily abiding with Christ, learning to use these psalms in our own in our own prayer life. And so I hope that you will uh, that you will remember those things and put them into practice. This is another lament psalm. So we've talked about how each of the psalms there's a different category you could put them in. This is a lament psalm. It is the second lament psalm that we have done together, the last one in the series. The first one was back at the beginning of Advent, December 3rd, and it was Psalm 43. And I gave you a definition of a lament in that sermon. It's not in your worship guide today, but I want to remind you of that definition that I gave you that day. A lament is when you take all of your fears, your frustrations, and your discouragements to God with honesty, humility, and trust. It's when you take all of your fears, frustrations, and discouragements to God, and you do so with honesty, humility, and trust. And we talked about in that message how the difference between a lament and a complaint is that most of the time when we're complaining, we'll take our fears, our frustrations, and our discouragements to someone, maybe even to God. We'll be very honest, but we will sometimes miss out on the humility and the trust of going before God and giving Him the complaint, what we're afraid of or what we're discouraged by or what we're angry over. But a lament, we do that with humility knowing He is God and, and that we are not, and trust that God is listening and that God will answer us as we lament to Him. And so here we are again, Psalm 143, another lament psalm. And the reason for the lament is found in verses 3 and 4, and that's where we're going to start in Psalm 143. David writes and says, "...the enemy has pursued my soul." He has crushed my life to the ground. He has made me sit in darkness like those long dead. Therefore, my spirit faints within me. My heart within me is appalled. David is very honest about what's happening. We don't know what this situation is, and that's okay. I think it maybe even helps us to not know exactly what the situation is. We don't know the face of the difficulty that David is dealing with. But what we do know is how he feels in the midst of the difficulty. He feels as if his soul has been pursued. The very life that is in him, his breath, his emotions, the very core of who he is. He feels like he has been crushed to the ground. 
He feels like he is sitting in darkness and he can't even remember when he used to be in the light. He's been sitting there so long in the darkness. To him, it feels like those who have already died and passed away into some type of darkness. That's how he feels. And his spirit faints within me. When the Bible talks about your spirit fainting, it is talking about being at the very end of your strength. I don't think I have anything left. And my heart within me is appalled, a word that means desolation. At the very core of who I am, there is a desolate place. I feel nothing. So whatever is happening in David's life, this is the place that he's been brought to. And where I think that can help us is we might find ourselves here. Maybe as we read those two verses and talk through them, you recognize a place that you've been in your own life. Maybe you recognize a place you are right now. And how you got there, the face of the difficulty doesn't matter so much. Maybe it's a situation, a circumstance, a person. But whatever the difficulty is, it has brought you to this place of feeling like your very soul has been pursued, that you're in the darkness, that you're being crushed, and that your spirit is fainting within you. And I want us to know today from the very beginning is that you and I must be aware that there is an adversary that we have, an enemy that we have, that desires to crush our souls into the ground, cause us to sit in darkness, to bring us to a place where our very souls feel faint. Our spirit feels like we have no strength left. David, the enemy that has pursued his soul, perhaps a real person, but behind that real person was the adversary that had been against God's people from Genesis chapter 3. And it's the same enemy and adversary that you face. It takes faith to understand that that there is a very real enemy to your soul. To not believe that is to doom yourself. Because the enemy of your soul would love nothing more than for you to not pay any attention to him at all. He doesn't care if you believe in his existence. He doesn't care if you can see or know what he's doing. All he cares about is that you end up in a place feeling lifeless, crushed, and apart from God. So if you have a worship guide and you're a note taker, let's start with this life truth. There is an enemy who aims to overwhelm your soul and cause you to give up on God. There is an enemy who aims to overwhelm your soul and cause you to give up on God. I'm going to pause there for just a moment. Know this, to give up on God 
is the very definition of death. Because John 17 tells us that eternal life is to know God and Jesus Christ whom He sent. To be apart from God, away from God, to not be in His presence is ultimately the definition of death. And there is an enemy who desires to get you to a place to where you no longer reach out to God. You no longer believe that He loves you. You no longer believe that He will help you. He wants you to give up on that idea of taking refuge in God. That's His aim. And listen, if He can make you filthy rich in order to do that, He will. If He can give you all the prosperity on earth to get you to give up on God, He'll do that. He doesn't care. He doesn't care if you have an easy life as long as you don't look to God. But He also knows that for many of us, it will be trials. It'll be our suffering. It'll be our difficulties that will cause us to want to give up on God. And He will use those. So finishing this life truth, the enemy is particularly active during your trials. Times when you may be most vulnerable, you must be vigilant and ready to resist him. If I could give you a, a thesis for the sermon today, if I could give you a, a primary statement for this message, it is the last one. You must be vigilant and ready to resist him. Look, some of you right now, you're in a trial. So this resonates. You're dealing with something. Maybe, maybe this is you, verse 3 and 4. Maybe you are really struggling with fears or discouragements, anger, depression. Some of you, though, you're not there. It's a little harder when you're not in a trial to kind of pay attention to those warnings. But the time to get ready to resist Him is now, before the trial ever comes. And if you're in the trial right now, you need the wake-up call to look around and realize what's happening and what the enemy is trying to do. If you have a Bible this morning, if you'll go over to 1 Peter chapter 5 in the New Testament, I want to show you a couple of passages here. And as I always say, if you don't have a copy of God's Word, we'd love to gift you with one. There's a couple on the back table, so please pick that up if you don't have a Bible, and that is our gift to you. 1 Peter is written, we, we preached through First and Second Peter a couple of years ago, a few years ago, First and Second Peter are written, the context is a suffering church. First century, the church has entered into a time of persecution, it's going to get worse, Peter knows that, he's writing these letters, so the context is trials and difficulties. And look at verse, actually verse 8, I need to start in verse 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Sometimes in our trials, what we think is no one else is going through this. No one else knows what this is like. 
No one else is dealing with this. Peter seeks to tell the church, no, this suffering is being experienced by everyone who seeks to follow God. Don't let the enemy tell you it's just you. God's forgotten you because you're in a trial. This is happening all over the world to all of the church. Go back to verse 8. What's the call? Be sober-minded. Pay attention. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. It's a call to spiritual vigilance. He is telling you, there is an enemy. If you knew you were safe in your home, but outside in your yard, there roamed an enemy who at any moment was going to break in to do you and your family harm, what would you do? You would act. You would be sober-minded. You would be watchful. He is telling you there is an enemy in your yard. He's looking for anyone who he can devour. So be sober-minded. Be watchful. Be vigilant. Pay attention. Being sober-minded is to not be distracted. To not get caught up in so many of the cares and concerns and habits and joys and playthings in the world that we're not paying attention to what's happening around us. It's being watchful and vigilant that there is an enemy who desires to overwhelm you and devour you. He doesn't say be afraid of this. He doesn't say be scared. What does he say? Resist him. Resist him. There is no question who will win between the people of God clinging to God who are being attacked by the enemy and, and, and the enemy who seeks to devour your soul. The victory is a foregone conclusion that you can resist him and he will flee if you are sober-minded and watchful and if you cling to God. So he says, resist him. How do you resist him? Look at verse 9. Resist him. How? And I'm going to add a couple of words here, but I believe it's for clarity and that they fit. Resist him by standing firm in your faith. That's how you resist him. You stand firm in your faith. We won't turn there, but Ephesians chapter 6 is a great passage to read that's a parallel to this. In Ephesians 6, we're given this same warning. Ephesians 6 says, church, we don't wrestle with just flesh and blood. Our true battle is with spiritual authorities. Okay, so don't just get focused on, I'm struggling in debt. Don't just get focused on, this health issue won't go away. Don't get focused on, I am, I'm depressed and feel like I am in darkness and there's no hope. Don't just get focused on this relationship, this marriage, this friendship is falling apart. I'm not saying turn a blind eye to those things. You have to deal with what the issue is. But don't get so focused on those things that you don't see that it's not just flesh and blood that you're dealing with. There's spiritual authorities at work 
that wish to take those problems that you are facing and devour your soul. Ephesians 6 says, so we don't wrestle with flesh and blood, but with spiritual authorities. And then Ephesians 6 goes on to say, so stand firm. Stand firm in your faith. It actually then gives us that armor, the armor of God that we're probably familiar with in that passage. And part of the armor of God is to take up the shield of faith that extinguishes the fiery darts that the enemy throws at you. Standing firm in your faith is how you resist Him. And what I hope you can see in Psalm 143 is the psalmist, David, standing firm in his faith. As he is in the midst of this trial, as he is in the midst of this difficulty, as he feels like his very life has been crushed to the ground, and that he is at the end of his strength, David stands firm in faith. And I want to point out to you this morning a few signs that we have in Psalm 143 of how he does that. So in your notes, four ways that I see in Psalm 143 that David stands firm in his faith, and I want you to take this and think about it for your life of how you stand firm in your faith, especially in your trials. Know you're vulnerable in your trials. Please know that. When you're suffering, you're vulnerable. When your marriage is struggling, you're vulnerable. When you're worried about finances, you're vulnerable. So stand firm. How do we do that? Number one, what we see David do. Act on what you know about God. Act on what you know about God. Another way to put that is when you don't know what's happening, hold on to what you do know is happening. Belief orders relationships in our lives, right? What we believe orders the relationships we have. Most every marriage that falls apart begins with the thought of there's nothing that can be done here. They're not going to change. They're not going to listen. This cannot be helped. That is a belief that then orders how you act in the relationship. Or, on a positive note, if you have a friend that you're struggling with and, and you say, I, I know I need to go to them and talk to them, I know they will listen. I, I know they will. I know they'll hear me. Might not agree with me, but they will hear what I'm saying. So I'm going to go to them and I'm going to work this out. That is a belief that is ordering how you act toward your friend. Same thing with God. What you believe about God orders your relationship with God. So what does David believe about him? Let's look at a few clues, beginning in verse 1. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give, ears to, give ear to my pleas for mercy. What does David believe? He believes God is a merciful God who will listen to him when he prays. So what does he do? He prays. In your faithfulness, answer me. What does David believe? God is faithful. He will answer me when I cry out to Him. In your faithfulness, answer me in your righteousness. In your faithfulness, answer me. Answer me in your righteousness. What does David believe? He believes that God is a righteous God who will do right things. 
He can trust what God says. Do you see? These are things David already believes about God, so he acts on it in the midst of his trial. Look at verse 7 and 8. Answer me quickly, O Lord, my spirit fails. Hide not your face from me, lest I be like those who go down to the pit. Let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love. For in you I trust. What does David believe about God? That he is a God of steadfast love. That he can trust Him. That if he runs to God for rescue, God will help him. That he is a trustworthy God. That he is a God who will not remove his love from David. He believes that about him. Look at verse 12. In your steadfast love, you will cut off my enemies. You will destroy all the adversaries of my soul, for I am your servant. What does he believe about God? He will win the day. Do you see, if David did not believe those things, he would not go to God. If he didn't believe he was merciful, if he didn't believe that he would hear, if he didn't believe he would answer, if he didn't believe he was loving, if he didn't believe he was powerful, what you believe about God orders your relationship with God. Many times in the midst of your trials, the enemy is whispering to you lies about God. He is not merciful. He will not hear. He will not answer. He has forgotten you. He cannot win the day. You must act on what you believe. Your temptation in your trials will be to pull away from God. You resist the enemy by running to God. Do you see that? The enemy wants to take your trial and cause you to pull from God and your soul to be devoured. How do you resist the enemy? You run to God clinging to what you know about Him. I don't know how many of you are kind of paying attention to you know, the New Year's if you're doing the, the whole New Year resolution thing or making goals for the next year. I think that actually is a very healthy exercise as long as you don't just try to do it in your own power or as long as your goals aren't just about you and your own strength making a better life. But I do think looking at where you are and where you want to be is a healthy thing. And I just want to commend to you what we studied together in Colossians 1, verses 9 and 10. And if I could give you anything and say, make this your prayer this year. Put this before you and pray this over your life and over your children and grandchildren and friends. Pray that you may be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you can walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him and bearing fruit in every good work. Do you see how important it is, church, to right now grow in your knowledge of God? You're going to need it. You need to learn who God is and be filled with the knowledge of Him because when the trial comes, you're going to need to cling to what you know of God. Secondly, what we see David do is repent of known sin. We see David repent of his sins. Verse 2, Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. Is it very interesting that David, in the midst of how he feels, in the midst of feeling crushed to the ground and 
like his spirit is fading away and he's acting on the things that he believes and in the midst of that, he repents. God, when I, as I'm coming to you, God, please, please don't relate to me based on me. Please don't relate to me based on what I deserve. Because if you do that, it's just going to be judgment. Because no one is righteous before you, God. Please be merciful to me. Remember how we talked about when you lament, you go to God with honesty and humility. Part of that humility is looking at your own life in the midst of what you're going through and asking God, while I'm here, what can I learn from this? What do you want to tell me? What do I need to learn? What do I need to do differently? How do I need to repent as I'm coming to you and asking you to rescue me? In James chapter 5, you can turn there if you, if you like for just a moment. But in James 5, again, a letter that is written to a church in the midst of suffering and persecution. James is writing a lot about trials and, and how to think and believe in the midst of a trial. And in verse 15 and 16, he gives some instructions that you're probably familiar with. Actually, I'll be back up to verse 13. Is anyone among you church suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Look at verse 15. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if, if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. And he goes on to say, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. So what is happening there? James makes a connection that sometimes as you run to God with your trial, in this case, suffering and sickness, but it could be, I believe, other trials, but as you run to God and you ask for deliverance and you ask for healing, you may find that God reveals to you sin that you are in. And James connects those things together and says, as the elders are praying, as you're seeking healing, if you have sinned, you'll be forgiven. When are you forgiven of your sins? As you look to Christ and repent and confess. So as this person who is suffering in their sickness goes through asking God for healing, in the midst of that, God reveals to them their sin that they need to confess. And James believes they will confess that sin and be forgiven. And then he goes on to give the instruction, pray for one another, confess your sins to one another, that what may happen. You may be healed of the trial, but also of the sin. Sometimes your need to repent is the reason for the trial. Sometimes, sometimes, the reason you are in the difficulty you are in is because God is calling you to repent. Most of you, if you've been here a while, you've heard me talk about my dad. 
You know that he passed away many years ago. I was 26. You know that we had a great relationship. You may remember that I've shared with you that he was in a horrific car ac- uh, motorcycle accident when I was five years old. Horrific. Almost died. What you don't know, because I realized this week, I don't think I've ever shared the story with anyone, or at least if I have, just a handful of people. When I was five years old and my dad was in that horrific car accident, multiple organs, internal bleeding, uh, fractures, broken bones. He was in the hospital for six to eight weeks in rehabilitation. He was off work for several months. We had been involved in a church over off Carson Road, and the pastor of the church came over and visited my dad and spent time with him and prayed with him. But during that visit, the pastor of that church looked at my dad and said, Stan, this happened because you are going down the wrong path. Now, I will tell you that that pastor angered a lot of people in my family. They didn't like him very much. They didn't like what he said. And I don't know if he just understood something from pastoring the church and my dad being around. I tend to believe that that was a prophetic word. I will tell you I have come to admire that man greatly because I know how difficult it is to give people hard words. He was not ashamed to tell my dad what he thought. And I will tell you this. My dad didn't listen. And everything in his life changed from that moment on. He had gotten to a place of merely being religious. He was just going to church and going through the motions. He was withdrawing from the Savior that he had confessed. And my mom, for years, would pinpoint that moment after that accident as when everything started changing. I never saw him come back to any kind of meaningful faith. Their marriage fell apart. Our family fell apart. And I love my dad, and I hate having to say these things because he was my one of my best friends. But had he listened, I don't know that he would be alive today, but I will tell you, his life, my life, and our family would have been vastly different. He didn't listen, not to that man, but to what God was saying. Some trials happen to cause us to repent. Now, some trials do not happen to cause us to repent. But I do think it is important to understand that in every trial you face, you can learn from it. And you can see things about you that you need to repent. If your trial is that you are suffering from an enemy's persecution and their hatred towards you, you are going to see the ugliness in you when you are attacked. And it is an opportunity for you to repent of that. So, in your trial, the temptation will always be to focus on what's fair to you. God, why is this happening? Why did you let this happen? This is not fair. And you know what? Maybe it's not fair. But here's how you resist the enemy. In your trial, approach God and repent of your sins. Can you imagine 
the warfare it does to the kingdom of darkness for you to be attacked so that you would pull from God and instead what you do is run toward God and repent of your sins. That is standing firm in the faith. Number three, we see that David meditates on the works of God. Meditates on the works of God. I have in your notes that meditate means to think deeply and think often. Look at verse 5 and 6. It's very clear. It's so clear. Cause and effect. Look at what David says. I remember the days of old. I meditate on all that you have done. I ponder the works of your hands. This is in the midst of his trial, okay? In the midst of what he's dealing with, what does he do? I remember the days of old. I meditate on all that you have done. I ponder the works of your hands. And then look what happens immediately. Verse 6, I stretch out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. What happens? Worship. When David, in the midst of his trial, stands firm in his faith by remembering all that God has done, pondering all of the works of God on his behalf and behalf of God's people, and how God has, has done things in his life to mold him and shape him and do good to him, immediately David's response is, I'm going to worship you. We've talked so much in the last three, four months about the importance of praising in the midst of your difficulties. We've talked about how praise is warfare in the midst of your trials. Church, what we want to do in the midst of the difficulties is withdraw. God says, flee to me. In the midst of the difficulties, I don't feel like corporate worship. I don't, I don't feel like going there and doing that, yet it is the remedy in many ways to draw near to God with His church in prayer and praise. How do you meditate? Give testimony of what God has done. Remember how I, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago? I asked you, think about when's the last time you interrupted someone's day? to text them, to tell them of something good God has done, called them up to tell them something God has done. When you testify to other people of God's goodness, you're meditating on His works. When you go to a small group or fellowship, get together with another believer to pray over coffee or whatever, and you spend a few minutes sharing with one another what God is doing, you're listening to someone else's testimony, you're meditating on the works of God. When you read the Word, when you go to the Scriptures and you read the things that He has done in the history of mankind, you are pondering His works. And you know what? In that moment, it may not seem to you that it is doing something for your soul, but it is. And you will find that you are being built up in faith and strength so that when that trial comes, you have been pondering the works of God. When the enemy comes and says, he has forgotten about you, when he, the enemy comes and says, he doesn't love you, when the enemy comes and says, he's not there for you, and then you start saying, no, 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 that moment in my life, I remember what he did for me, and he has not changed. 
I have seen him do this and this and this and this. He has not ceased in his good works to me. The temptation in your trial is to meditate on the trial. It's to meditate on the problem and how to get out of it. You resist the enemy and stand firm in your faith by focusing on God and all that He has done for you. And finally, we see resistance and standing firm by obeying God. Obeying Him. So look at, look at David. Look at what he says in verses 8 through 10 again. Let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love, for in you I trust. Make me know the way I should go, for to you I lift up my soul. Deliver me from my enemies, O Lord. I have fled to you for refuge. Look at this. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. Do you remember when we studied Proverbs? Do you remember the prayer of Agur? Proverbs chapter 30. He prayed, God, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. So his prayer was, God, don't make me rich beyond my wildest dreams and, and don't let me be poor. Give me what I need. But then what was the reason that he prayed that? He said, so that I don't become full and deny you. In other words, so that in my prosperity I don't forget that I need you. And then he says, or that I become poor and still and profane the name of my God. Why would he still and profane God's name in his poverty? Because in the midst of the trial of poverty... Everything in him would say, you, you need to fix this. You need to get out of this by your own power. In your trials, your temptation will be, fix it. Deal with this by my own strength, my own power, my own wisdom. And what David is saying in the midst of his trial is, God, I'm here, I feel crushed to the ground, my soul has been pursued, I'm in the dark, my spirit is faint within me, my heart is desolate. God, make me know the way I should go. God, teach me to do your will. He prays in your notes. He asks God for His direction so He can follow it. And He asks God for His commands so that He can do them. Your temptation will be, figure your own way out. You resist the enemy and you stand firm in your faith by going to God and asking for His direction and His commands. So let's end with a gospel thought. I have in your notes to look to Jesus. Here's what I don't want you to do. I don't want you to take the worship guide. I don't want you to take this as a four-step process and say, okay, here's how I resist the enemy. I just need to act on what I know. I need to repent. I need to meditate. I need to obey. And it become like this checklist. Now, I do believe, absolutely, this is how we stand firm. We see this in Psalm 143. This is how we resist. But you don't do this in your own power. Look to Jesus. Remember, in your notes, Jesus has gone before you Jesus suffered temptation from the enemy in His own times of trial. 
was the first thing that happened when his ministry started. Matthew 4, he goes into the wilderness and he suffers under direct temptation of Satan. He's not getting just demons and spiritual authorities. Satan himself is standing next to Jesus, tempting him to rescue himself. Don't look to God. He's gone through the same things that you go through in your trials. In Matthew 26, it was the garden when he knew what God had asked of him, but he was praying, God, if this cup can pass by me, let it. But let your will be done. Jesus has already suffered this. You are not praying to a Lord who doesn't know what it's like to suffer in trial. Jesus suffered temptation from the enemy in His own times. So, you stand firm by all the ways that we've just outlined, these things that we have talked about, but you do it as you abide with Christ. This is not a mere religious checklist. Abide with Christ, especially in prayer. Please, church, look at your life. Are you abiding? Then go deeper. If you're not abiding, remain with Christ. Flee to Him. Set your face in this new year to have a prayer life where you have meaningful time with Jesus every day, whether it's going through the Psalms, whatever it looks like. Don't make it just a flippant part of your day. Abide in prayer. Will that be hard? Yes, we've talked so much about our call to be a house of prayer, and I've said to you so often, prayer's hard, but you have the promise that if you will draw near to God, He will draw near to you, and you will find prayer to be beautiful. Keep knocking on the door. Abide with Christ, and as you abide with Him, act on what you believe. Repent of your sins. Meditate on what He has done and what He is doing. And ask Him to help you obey. And look at this last promise. He will never allow you to be tempted beyond what you can resist. It is a promise direct from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where Paul starts off by writing about the Old Testament saints and the people of God in the Old Testament. And he says, although they belonged to God, they were not faithful to God. And then he starts listing a lot of the things that they had done. They had turned to idols. They had grumbled against God rather than lamenting. And then he goes on to say that the reason that some of these things have been written down for you is that you would take heed. Look at how the people of God ended up in the wilderness for 40 years grumbling against God. Learn from that. Don't grumble against God. Lament. And then he says, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Right, you think, I'm strong. I'm good. I, I know I need, to, I need to pray more. I got, I got it, but I'm, I'm good. And he, and he says, be careful because the trial may come where you find you're not good and you fall. What does he say? Verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you 
that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will always provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. If you go off on your own in your trials and you withdraw from God, there are no promises there of what that's going to look like. Abide with Christ, cling to Jesus, and here's the promise. Not that you won't face temptation, but it will never overwhelm you. He will never allow you to face a temptation that you cannot resist if you abide with Christ. Agape, abide with Jesus. Abide with Him. Be vigilant in your trials. Understand what the enemy is trying to do. Resist him firm in your faith. He wants to overwhelm your soul. Christ will not let you be overwhelmed if you look to him. Put your faith in Christ first and foremost. Repent of your sins and ask for him to be your savior. And as a believer... Prepare for your trials by growing in the knowledge of God. And in your trials, resist Him firm, abiding with Christ.